You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently had a great opportunity to kick off Nordic's 2023 Summer Social with a live podcast recording at the Edgewater Hotel in Madison, Wisconsin. We were joined by three special guests, Dr. C.T. Lynn, CMIO at UC Health, Liz Salmi, Director of Communications and Patient Initiatives at OpenNotes, and last but not least, Dr. Brian Stites, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at Vanderbilt University. What happens when you have a clinician, an academic researcher, and the epitome of all patient advocates together on a single podcast? A lively discussion around transparency and the importance of returning results to patients in a timely fashion. Let's plug into our live podcast from the 2023 Nordic Summer Social at the Edgewater Hotel in Madison, Wisconsin. Let us start without further ado. Welcome Brian, Liz, and CT to the pod. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Now, as you may know, um, we have never had more than one person on the pod. And as you may know, we have never done it in front of a live, not studio audience. And so this is new for us. And so uh, we are very thankful for you being here. Now, one of you who shall not be named, but it was Dr. C.T. Lynn, have been on the podcast before. You're a professional at this podcast. Would you say that's true? I I would say so, yes. Okay. And typically, when I start, I usually get the first question. Jerome usually gets the last question. You, You take the first question. I take the first question, and I say something like, Liz, ever since you were small, you wanted to be in a punk band, but now you've ended up working uh, for uh, Open Notes organization trying to add transparency to medicine. Where did you go wrong? Is that an actual question or is that an example of a question? Okay. Liz, have you not listened to the podcast? This <laughs> I is have listened. I have listened to the podcast. This is the level of discourse that we have on our podcast. You have this great dry delivery that I'm like, what is happening here? What is happening? Yeah, this is happening. Where did you go wrong? Why are we not? It's all the same. It's still the same thing. So, yes, I uh, was a drummer in a punk rock band for many years. And then I realized I needed health insurance and a real job. So I started working real job. Uh, then I uh, had a grand mal seizure, landed in the ED and found out I have a brain tumor. This is around age 29. And I leaned into that experience, real lived patient experience. Um, I was also a graphic designer at that moment and realized I was really fascinated about all aspects of healthcare. It was fell in love with patient portals. And, and then as a graphic designer and, and kind of weird thinker of things coming from my punk rock background, I wanted to get involved in healthcare. So I can go on and on, but essentially the work I do today is working on the Open Notes Research pro- Project. We're based at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical and Center in Boston. Not everybody who ends up needing the kind of care that you need um, then goes on to take that experience and turn it into something real. And, and I have to think that sort of DIY ethic that came from the punk rock Absolutely. era has something to do with that. Yeah. No, um, I think about that often. I actually I have my own blog. I started as a, as a patient uh, blogger um, in the late... Uh, 2000, 2008, that was like the time before all of the social medias, 
patients who wanted to talk about what they were going through before Facebooks, uh, we would go and long form block. And I continued to do that. And being in that space and like the rise of social media and sharing healthcare experiences in social media is what I grew up in. And being around other patient advocates, I learned about things like access to my own uh, progress notes and the open notes movement. I was like, I want in on that. That's like the most punk rock thing happening in healthcare is the idea of full transparency, people having full access to everything in their medical records. And so I really uh, fell in love with what they were doing. It took me a few years t in like nonprofit healthcare spaces to kind of catch their eye, but they're like, you should work with us. And I was like, yes, yes I do, <laughs> I should be doing this. Liz, you're perfect for this audience of ours because um, you fell in love with patient portals. And I think everyone here has said that they have fallen in love with patient portals. Is that a joke? I think that <laughs> you is. You should a, fall in love. <laughs> that is a joke. Wait, I've got, you got one or two, one or two or three people if that have fallen. If the portal is well designed, you shouldn't even notice that you're falling in love. But when you are pissed off because you're not getting what you need and it's not poorly designed, then you're like, what is this all about? All right, we're gonna trash. we're gonna get to that. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me introduce our second guest, Brian Stites. Now, Brian, you also, I believe, if I have this correct, and I I don't normally look at the prep that other people do for me, you also wanted to be in a punk rock band, but were not successful, and and now you uh, took a secondary job and got a PhD at some university. Is that is that true? And if it's not true, please just say it is true. It's it's super close. It's um, you know, so I, I started out um, wanting to do counterterrorism. Wow, that's pretty punk rock. <laughs> and, and so I went went to college wanting to do this this um, kind of you know team analytics and what are the networks and groups of people that you know make something happen or you know engage in some activity. And you know, after some a couple of research experiences and some, you know, different jobs in college, decided that maybe the you know the the counterintelligence type of path wasn't so much for me, um, and so decided to go into medicine and and get a PhD in biomedical infra informatics, basically taking those ideas of team analytics and understanding teamwork and communication um, to improve healthcare. Well, and, and um, what is the name of the university that you're at now? Uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And do they have a good football team? Um, they have a football team. This year? I don't, I don't know. I don't follow American <laughs> sports. I don't know how this works. Uh, all right, Vanderbilt. So that's an okay school. And um, we have recorded podcasts with one or two uh, PhDs from Vanderbilt. And uh, you might be aware of them. Allison McCoy and Adam Wright. Yeah, and they were bad podcasts. I mean, <laughs> like they people should not probably go back and listen to them. They were not good, but um, we're hoping that third third time's the charm. But, but they're fantastic mentors. They're good. But I'm not saying they're not good people. I'm just saying, well, I should I should stop. Dr. C. T. Lynn, thank you, Dr. Brian Stites, um, of the University of Colorado. Now, you never wanted to be in a punk rock band. Is that true? That is true. Okay. And you wanted to go to Vanderbilt and get a PhD, but you were unsuccessful. Is that also true? Yes, I was rudely excluded from Vanderbilt. No, yeah, no. and that's the problem. And it's because of the bad, f you were like a quarterback at the time, I believe. Is that accurate? Exactly. <laughs> All right, so you are now the CMIO at the University of Colorado. 
And the three of you are on our podcast today because you wrote an article. And I think you've written many articles, but you wrote one specific article that you're presenting at the Epic Conference this week. And I wanted to hear more about that. Dr. Stites is the, is the lead author. So tell us a little bit about this article and uh, what were you trying to find out? What did you find out? And then let's talk about if we think it's real or not. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, a little bit about how it came about. Um, so we've got this 21st Century Cures Act in 2021 that basically, that now says the patients should have access to all of their notes and um, test results and all of this other piece, these other pieces of electronic health information. And we did a lot of really early work looking at, you know, what is the workflow around these, the test result release and review? And so we found that, you know, providers are, you know, historically had this long run-in time where they were able to review and talk with the patient, um, especially around these sensitive results. With the Cures Act, now patients are seeing these results before their providers. And that, you know, that could be really scary. And so we were, really wanted to understand kind of what do patients think of that? Do they want that? How, what are their, you know, perceptions around receiving results and what could we do better? Okay. And uh, Liz, what did you find? I think Brian's better at talking about the actual results. I'll just, I, I could say why, I, I'm happy to talk about why it was important. Why the study is important. Like there's, okay, people have these questions, but to me there was something that was a really important question that we needed to ask, and that was at the time, people, you know, suddenly people had access to everything, and I'm not answering your question, and I think Brian will, will throw in some of the, the, the fun nug nuggets, but at the time, clinicians, after the 21st Century Cures Act, were terrified that now people had access to everything in the record, and they were gonna have, uh, that patients are gonna be scared about what they see and these immediate access to their test results, everything in the record. And I personally, and I'm very biased, and I try not to be because I'm trying to be a good researcher, but I have a bias, and I think, I think patients want to see this information. So there was this debate over maybe we shouldn't, we should delay the release of these test results to patients. And so we sought out to form this superhero team of Vanderbilt, University of Colorado, uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, uh, uh, UC Davis, and UT Southwestern Texas to say, let's survey all of our patient populations and find out what patients think. And so here we go. All right, so hold on, hold on. I, th I think I need to jump in here because Liz undersells herself because she is the spark plug behind this paper. Um, she's the one who has connections with all of us in different organizations and in her casual conversation says things like to me We're about to study this with patients um, and and I'm I'm having tremendous FOMO going What would, why didn't you ask me? What can, can can I join in on this study and very quickly? Liz is able to get four major health systems together into this aggregate paper, and that's all Liz It's the punk rock aesthetic. That's how it was DIY. I wanted this study to happen. I had no skills to make that study happen other than I'm a decent communicator and I'm a big fan of Vanderbilt and U University of Colorado and like everybody else who is on this paper. All I was right. like, join me, let's do this. Before we hear about the results from Dr. Stites, let's just go over something. Dr. Stites, you have a, a PhD. Dr. Lin, you have an MD. Liz, tell us about your, your degrees, all of your degrees. 
I have an associate's degree in graphic design. Okay. Now, let's go through. I want everyone who's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine to please say I. I. So that uh, let the record show that Liz Salmi is the only one on this uh, stage, only one on this podcast, who has been published in the New England Journal. Um, so... Um, I'm embarrassed for you, Dr. Lynn, Dr. Stites. I'm embarrassed for you. Uh, and let's now, now, now that I've set up. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'd like everybody who has published a paper on stage to say I. 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 Yes. What? Oh yes. Some of us haven't looked at the literature. Uh, you would see my names in one or two articles. I'm, I'm gonna refer to my fact checker that all right now we've established that i have um been in the literature not not good literature but in the literature i'm not i'm not claiming anything um brian what did you find do patients want to see their results are they freaked out by their results people like uh ct don't want them to see their results he thinks the results belong to him not the patient that's what he said i think did i get that wrong it was don't even answer don't even answer brian Tell us what happened. Sure. So big multi-site study, over 8,000 patients, 96% of patients wanted their results immediately, whether they were reviewed first by a provider, and 95% of patients wanted them even if those results were abnormal or somehow, you know, sensitive and, and invoking some, you know, emotional response. But let me ask you about that. Did you expect a different response? I didn't expect a response so strong. I mean, that is an overwhelming number of patients. 96% want their results. That's, that's just incredible to me. I mean, if you listen to my colleagues and colleagues around the country, they tell you, well, no, my patients don't want that. They want me to call them ahead of time. And it's okay if it's two weeks later because they want to hear from me. So none of my patients want this immediate stuff that you're trying to promote. I don't have any patients, um, but I... Uh I'm a patient advocate, and I work with a lot of different patients over the last 16 years of living with uh, a serious chronic condition. And patients want this information. And so I was like, this needs to be understood better. Um, how we communicate with folks after the fact, after they get these test results, like that could use more work. But I knew there was going to be something in the 90%. I didn't expect so 96%. That finding in particular I find very compelling because it c someone could easily make the argument, the Steve Jobs argument, that patients, they don't really know what they want, right? You have to kind of tell them the experience that's best for them. But that's not what you found. What you found actually was that even people who had had a negative result returned to them came back and said, look, I, I, I want the results right away, knowing that the next result may be abnormal as well. And so to me, that's, that's, that's a compelling case that patients are really advocating for themselves and what's what, what, what will best meet their needs. I think with, with the Cures Act and then Cures Rule and people having all of this information, from me, uh, my perspective that makes me excited is people finally for the first time can see themselves through the data that they produce and they lean in and they can see this is me, this is my body, this is my progress note, and they can do something with it. And I think more design and iteration will happen over the next 10 years. We're gonna be co-designing more with patients. Uh, we're just at the early stage now that we have the flow of information. 
I want to coax Liz to say a little bit more because, you know, the driving force behind studying this was actually some of her personal experience with her chronic illness and realizing that owning her own information, having real access to it rather than mother may I and how many signatures do I have to sign and how long will it take for you to mail this to me um, was a tremendous differentiator in her participating in her own care, if you would say something about that. I think you, you you just said it. I didn't. I have no idea what else I'd say. <laughs> well, let's talk about that transparency yeah. for a second, right? Because um, it could easily just be the case that uh, people are anxious, and this information, having the information so sooner, sort of soothes um, how they're feeling. But this transparency can actually make a difference in how they think about the course of their illness and their care. So, what as and and let's talk a little bit about open notes here. What as we're on this journey for more and more full transparency, how do we expect to, that to change the way patients and physicians interact around the care process? I want to throw it to CT because CT was like doing open notes, but for open notes, created a logo called Open Notes. And he will tell you that, that he published the first open notes paper before open notes was cool. Um, so I, I hand it to you, CT. You know, the transparency journey takes a while, and I, I didn't appreciate that. Um, early in my career as a physician informaticist, I, I thought that, well, all of my colleagues are scientists. They're doctors. They're all trained in science, and so therefore p-values must be where things are. I mean, if, if I can show statistically significant p-values, there's no argument. Right? I can walk into a leadership meeting and say I have great, there's, there's significant p-values here. The patient's you know, st uh, substantially more satisfied, and uh, there's no downside to having nurses and physicians with patients who have full access to their record. And I didn't realize that there's this whole other concept called leadership that has nothing to do with scientific p-values. And, uh, and in my early career, I have a number of potholes I've stepped in, in terms of failed projects. Um, we did our first transparency project in 2001, and I had gone to our leadership group in 2002 and wanted to make this system-wide. We had studied it in one cardiology practice, and we wanted it rolled out in all 40 other specialties, and um, surprise, surprise, as a reading of Machiavelli's The Prince will tell you, um, leadership is different from just science. And I was basically escorted out of that meeting, hey, that, that's a nice pet project that you have, but no, it's not for us because my patients are way more complicated than the ones you study. And I was not able to get that over the line. Over time, and with the assistance of the National Open Notes Movement, uh, we've come back around and we are now system-wide open notes. It does change the tenor of how clinicians interact both with the record and with patients. Um, in, in the early days, I would have clinicians tell me, you know, the medi medical record is too dangerous for patients to get in there. I, I write notes about cancer and my speculation, and it's important for me and my colleagues to know that, but patients shouldn't be in there. I don't want to spend hours explaining myself. Did they go to medical school? No, they did not. This is not intended for them. And we've come a long way since that time. That's, um, that's fascinating. One, one thing that was in your data that I did not expect to see is um, the, the result around pre-counseling. So CT, let me tell you how your doctors work. Um, if your doctors tell their patients, hey, we're doing this study, uh, we're doing this test, we're doing this imaging study, it might show something. Um, if, it's, if this number is just a little bit above what it says is the is the in the normal range don't worry about that if it's a hundred times then we'll talk about that but if it's a, don't worry 
pre-counseling, kind of, hey, don't worry, this is what I kind of expect, and, and to kind of give you some sense of, of where we're going. And so that naturally, I think we all know, will decrease the worry level because you're, you're telling people what to expect, you're setting expectations appropriately. And so, of course, if you made up the data in your article, which I'm assuming that you didn't, but don't answer that question for legal purposes, I would have expected a big association between pre-counseling and lowering the worry level of patients. Yet, you found none, Dr. Stites. Does that mean that you faked the data? It does not mean that we faked the data, but it does mean that most patients were already reporting receiving pre-counseling. And so it's, you know, over 90% of the patients that we surveyed reported that they did receive some sort of conversation with their provider about, you know, what is this result, what might it mean? What are, you know, potential results? Um, these are expectations for follow-up. Um, and I think, I think that's a lot of the signal that we were picking up rather than yes or no pre-counseling does or does not work. So, so the, the, um, the answer remains elusive. Uh, I would say, though, that in our data, um, we did show a tendency toward, right? Even though it did not meet statistical significance, some of the data that we showed uh, did, did demonstrate that the, the aggregate uh, of the median was that for patients who did indicate that they were pre-counseled, there was a trend towards less anxiety. Uh, so I think we needed a larger population size. And this was also uncontrolled. We did not go out and tell half the patients uh, or half the clinicians, go and pre-counsel these patients but not those patients. This is a natural experiment, and we're able to show maybe a hint of a signal. We can't call it a p-value, um, but, but, but there's a signal there. Um, the other term that we use for this is anticipatory guidance. And actually, in talking with my psychology colleague, there are actually some underlying principles of anticipatory guidance, talking about anxiety and worry and how to reduce it. One component of, it, of getting a test result, for example, is threat. Another, uh, another uh, thread here is uncertainty. And the third th uh, thread here is lack of control. And when you go and do a CAT scan and you don't say anything about it, oh, you're having some abdominal pain? I'm gonna order a CAT scan. Talk to you later, right? That's not where you wanna go, but if you're gonna address threat uncertainty and lack of control, you will say the result will probably take three days to come back, and when it comes back, this is how we're going to deal with it. If it's a normal result, you might not hear from me for a few days, but if it's this, if it's cancer, there's a small, small chance it's cancer, then you'll probably hear from me right away. This is what to expect. And so all of this improves the sense of control, it reduces uncertainty, and even though there's threat, bad news is bad news regardless, but how I deliver it and how I predict it's going to happen changes everything, I think, in the patient's perception. So that's where we're going next with, with the type of thing we're looking to study. I gotta say, as, as, as the patient participant here slash researcher, we've got this PhD researcher, we've got medical doctor, and then I'm some weird person in the middle, literally and figuratively. <laughs> uh, but um, I can now, as I go in for my next MRI and uh, you know check in on the brain cancer situation, I really think about all of these elements, like I can't um, differentiate the experience, like, like thinking about the, my re response to this immediate access to test result and do I, because this is what I think patients are wondering, that I'm going to get this test result immediately, do I click yes, I want to view this test result or not, or do I want to wait to hear from, back from my doctor? Um, and I wanted, I 
I do want immediate access, but I also know I need to, I, it's on me to filter through those processes and those emotions. Uh, so when I get the message saying new result from my chart, it's like, it's a Pandora, uh, not Pandora's box. It's a, uh, what's it called? Schrodinger's cat in the box. Yeah. Somebody tell me yeah. what this is called. It's yeah. like, it's like I either it's a good test result or it's a bad test result. And on, and I, I have to click the box to figure out if what, what it is. So I want to say that the, person without the advanced degrees is shiting Schrodinger's cat to us. I appreciate <laughs> that. I called it Pandora's box, so either way, we all knew it. Well, maybe the cat about. was called Pandora. I mean, that's, you never know. Schrodinger's, yeah, okay. Test result. Let, let's talk a little bit about open notes, because you've, we've talked about transparency. We've, we've walked around this a little bit. Um, open notes is the idea that patients can easily see their progress notes that doctors write about them. Correct. Yeah. I'm, thank you for explaining that to me. And they do that via that patient portal thing that you fallen, have fallen in love with. It could, it could be a digital patient portal. Could have uh, printed something out and handed it to the patient. Okay. It's technology agnostic. But so, yeah. But most health records, like 95%, are on electronic records. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, as CT has, has said, uh, we use big words in medicine, like tachycardia. I don't actually know what that means, but I've read that a lot and hypertension and other big words. And um, patients couldn't possibly understand that, much like they couldn't possibly understand what a normal uh, you know, uh, hemoglobin level is. So I'm, I'm sure you agree with me on this, Liz. Is that true? Why, is it, why are you looking at me like that? Wait, I, don't, I agree with you about what? That patients can't understand their progress notes. Uh, that is not true. That is not, okay. There's, there's a whole body of work from the last 12 years that show that maybe we don't immediately know what the big word means when we read it in our progress note. Um, but we know how to problem solve because that's what we do when we have health conditions. You learn to learn what the big word is. Uh, is it uh, gemistocytic astrocytoma? I learned that word. I can pronounce it pretty well. That means a certain type of brain tumor. But if you live with the condition, you start to understand that particular vernacular. Um, and so did I know that word right away? No. But what do you do? What do people do? They go on the Internet and look things up. And so if you see that in your progress note, you're like, oh, it doesn't say Liz has a big brain tumor. It says grade two free astrocytoma. Let's, you know, figure it out. And so you start to understand the language of your clinical diagnosis. Um, and the progress note is a place, you know, that documentation was designed for, it's supposed to be a communicate, well, we can have a whole debate about clinical documentation, but it's supposed to be a communications tool between many clinicians about a patient's uh, uh, diagnosis plan for treatment. But now the patient has a copy of that record and can plan for themselves and Google things, talk to their family members, do their own PubMed searches and so forth. Liz, you've been pretty open about your medical condition in the past. Can you give us enough context so that we can understand um, a little bit about wha what you had to go through when you were presenting at a medical conference recently? Oh, oh okay. I was like, what are we talking about? Yeah, uh, yeah. so I, uh, just a month ago, returned from a trip to the MedInfo conference in uh, Sydney, which is, I guess, a global, more clinical, medical, um, health IT, uh, informatics conference. Anyway, um, I was flying over the Pacific Ocean I was planning to fly over the Pacific Ocean and I was gonna be traveling internationally, so I asked my neuro-oncologist, the brain cancer doctor, to put it in plain language, um, what do I need? I need uh, some copy of my MRI, you know, things like that in case I needed care across um, 
in, in Sydney. And so she gave me a DVD of my record of my MRI and printed out my latest progress notes. And then um, she also got me a prescription for um, dexamethasone and Ativan. And these two prescriptions were just in case there was any sort of brain swelling that happened while I was way over the ocean and an emergency occurred. And so I was like, oh cool, some dexamethasone, Ativan, that's what I need to fly across the ocean because I have brain cancer, that's a lot. And so I, I realized I was flying alone. My husband wouldn't show up till a, a week later. So, I mean, this to, to have these instructions from my doctor saying, your brain might swell <laughs> over the ocean and you're alone, you gotta care for yourself. What do you do? So I created, um, like like a cheat sheet on an index card with instructions to whomever my seatmate is or for a flight attendant to like, hey, I have a brain tumor. Uh, I, d I essentially designed this really rudimentary system of, hey, I have a brain tumor, this is the situation, I have these two drugs. Or I created a Ziploc bag with the instructions, with the drugs in them, to basically hand over in case of emergency. But I really started to debate like, do I tell flight attendants about this right away and freak them out? Or do I wait till I'm having an emergency? Like, when is the right time to drop that news to somebody on a plane? So I had a dilemma about the delivery of that information. So ultimately, of course, I took a picture of my index card about my instructions and posted it to Twitter to get feedback. As from, one does. From, as one does. From the internet. And most of the folks I interact with on uh, social media, spe specifically Twitter, are uh, patient advocates, people with brain tumors, neurologists, neuro-oncologists, um, and, and doctors and researchers. And so they, they told me what they thought. And what did they think? H how do you design a tool like that to tell people what to do on a plane if you're unable to do that? I mean, that's, that's how you design the tool. It was very no, no technology neutral. Wait, are you asking me or CT? Because I see CT's no, warming up. I'm asking um, you. Uh, but what I, I did, it, it, so when I went out to the interweb community to ask, what do you guys think? From the, there was a, a well-known CIO, informaticist doc, who said, I think n you should not tell anybody about this because they might, it might scare off the flight attendants. Like, and then there was a group of people on the internet, because this is an internet debate. I'm talking about an internet debate, like this is horrible. Um, <laughs> but thanks for having me on your podcast. Anyways, they, they, uh, some folks were saying, um, you, you should not tell anybody about this because they won't let you on the plane. Like there are some, some uh, uh, in the disability advocacy community are, were saying you shouldn't say anything until the emergency happens, because they might say you cannot be on this plane. You're, you're a of flight risk or threats or something like that. You're the, you're the security threat person, I don't know. Um, and then some folks were like, this is perfect. This is, you've designed this great solution. Prototype it, put it out there, let us know how it went. Um, and fortunately, I, I was fine. And long story short, too, too long didn't read, I was fine and I didn't need it. But I had it with me at all times. Awesome, well that's great. Um, our time is getting short. I feel like I need a song. And Dr. Stites, I would ask you if you would like to sing a song for us. Yeah, Brian, woo! Brian, are you prepared with anything? Do you have anything? See, Liz, see, do you want to do anything? Beatles cover band cannot <laughs> hold a candle to a live original song. 
performed by C.T. All right, so Brian's a no. Liz um, could, but is not going to. And so we now have no one else to sing uh, this I, I'm going to go do backup vocals, but you. I'm going to go to the back of the stage where there are no microphones. There are Just certain for legal reasons comfort. you're not allowed to sing. Let me uh, talk with C.T. and say, uh, what are we going to hear? What do you think that uh, you're going to do for us uh, to as, your, as the encore uh, here? I have a song called Epic Man that I've... Uh, uh, played previously and I've updated it updated the lyrics for uh, immediate release of test results uh, how apropos how apropos she checked my templates last night pre-flight zero hour 8am and I'll be deep in my in basket by then miss paper charts so much I miss my life it's lonely in hyperspace on such a timeless flight and I think it's gonna be a long long time before I delay a test result again I'm not the man they think I am at all no 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 I'm in Epic man, epic man, sharing test results instantly. Seven days ain't the kind of way to delay your results. In fact, info blocking is now banned. And there's no one here will defend you if you did. Some results patients won't understand. Anticipatory guidance is our plan. Epic man, epic man. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time before delay a test result again. I'm not the man they think I am at all. No, 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 I'm an epic man. An epic man sharing test results instantly and ain't gonna be a long, long time and it ain't gonna be a long, long time yeah thank you CT and now we have come to the end of the podcast. So, CT, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to because you have previously. But we always like to end the podcast by asking our guests to tell us about two or three things that are so well designed, and they can be outside of healthcare, but are so well designed that they bring you joy to interact with. Brian, we'll start with you. Sure. So, I've, I've got a couple. Um, so first off, uh, Craig, I hear you're also a huge Apple fan. Apple fanboy. Fanboy. Okay. So I think my first extremely well-designed product is the Apple trackpad. So. Why? You know, it's, it's just so, so much easier to use than a mouse. I'm, I'm able to do all of the, you know, the gestures, you know, expand things, shrink things. Um, swipe between screens. I, I I find it to be a huge productivity boost, and just generally fun to use. Excellent. 
It is delightful. I agree. Liz, you want to give us one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I have one, like, big one. Um, I love coffee. I've loved coffee. I've been drinking coffee since I was eight years old. <laughs> Just long story. And I love when you go down the... Uh, coffee aisle, like the grocery store aisle where coffee is, you can just smell it coming. So it's this, the thing that's well designed though is when you get a bag of coffee, the beans, there's a vent on the outside that if you just press that vent, a whiff of coffee comes out of it <laughs> and you're just like, coffee smell, yes. And I didn't know how that was, I don't know if that's well designed but it's the smell experience that is well designed. And the thing is, I guess the vent, I had to look this up, I didn't know. But yeah, when coffee beans are roasted, there's like some sort of gas or something that, that happens. So the vent is designed so air comes out but does not come back in to ruin the coffee. So they st it stays fresh. So it is so well designed, so it does its job. But also you can kind of scratch and sniff as a consumer <laughs> and just have that hit of coffee smell and it's beautiful. So that's my thing. I, I learned something, and I'm going to do this the next time I go to the grocery store. CT, did you have a new one? You well, I'll just tell you that uh, um, clearly guitars are not well uh, designed because there's more strings than I have fingers on one hand, <laughs> which is why the ukulele <laughs> is my instrument. <laughs> I love it. And I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. Brian, Liz, CT, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 